Thank you, Michael. Good morning, everybody. It is a joy for me to be back with you again. I was here, as Michael mentioned, this time last year, and it was a joy to see the work that uh, has been started here. And uh, I look forward, we only arrived last night very late, and so I am looking forward to hearing more about the work that's going on here and uh, how that's progressing. Um, So it's funny, last year when I came here, I preached from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and this morning we're back in Colossians chapter 3. So this, this morning what I want to do though is I want to take us to Galatians. So I'm changing books, we're going to Galatians, we're going to work in chapter 5, and you can see in your notes there, I've got this really large swath of text to go through, and I know Michael likes to preach slowly, right? Have you guys noticed that? You're in chapter 9 of Luke after how many years? And um, so you'll see I've got a really big text, but I'm actually not going to preach at the same depth through all of it. We're going to focus most of our time in verses 16 and 17. So let's, uh, as we start though, I just want to tell you a little story. There was a, a man by the name of Marie-Augustine Pellier of Brittany in France. And back in the spring of 1786, he was arrested. There was an arrest warrant issued by King Louis the the 16th, and uh, he was, actually I think it was Louis the 14th, I think my notes are wrong there, but it was a blank warrant, and he was charged with having whistled at Marie Antoinette. I don't know if you know, but it's probably not a good thing to do when you've got a king, and he's in charge of everything, and just to be accused of anything, and so he was supposedly, she was about to take a seat in the Royal Lodge to watch a theatre production, and Apparently, this 22-year-old whistled, and he was consequently branded a prisoner of the state. He was arrested, and he was kept in solitary confinement for four years until 1790. Then he was secretly transferred to the dungeon at Lourdes. When the French Revolution broke out later that year, in 1790... The royal pair, the, you know, the, the two, you know, uh, King Louis and uh, Marie Antoinette were put to death, of course, you'll remember that. Uh, but the, the fact that they had died made no difference to Pellier. He was still incarcerated. In fact, he stayed in that cell for another 24 years. And then ultimately, when Napoleon was finally overthrown and imprisoned at Elba in 1814, the newly installed royal procurator, he went through the prison records and he found Pellier still incarcerated in solitary confinement. But of course, because he'd been secretly transferred, they had to find where he was now. And they ordered his, his immediate release 28 years after he was originally imprisoned. But they couldn't find him in time. And between the time when the, the, uh, the issue for him to be released and the time when they found him, Napoleon broke out of prison, and everything was thrown back up in the air again. And so France was back into this massive internal upheaval, and in the midst of all of this, this poor prisoner was forgotten again. His day of freedom did not come until 1836, 50 years after he was imprisoned. And when Marie Antoinette, the person he had originally whistled at, had been dead for 40 Three years. Long last, he was kindly dealt with. 
The 72-year-old was still officially a criminal, and calling it an act of grace, they belatedly restored him to his landed property in Brittany, to which he was set free. Can you imagine 50 years imprisoned in a French dungeon? Here's a question. What do you think he did after he was released? I can think of a whole lot of things he probably did, but I can tell you one thing he did not do. I bet he never went back to a prison for a visit. As terrible as it was for this man to be imprisoned for 50 years in solitary confinement, this imprisonment, this, this situation, this state is nothing compared to the situation or the imprisonment that you and I have been rescued from. Our former master continues to try to enslave us, even though we've been set free. This passage that we're dealing with this morning deals with this freedom. Let's read it together from verse 13 of Galatians 5. He says there, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. These are weighty matters. This is a heavy passage. And Lord, the problem we all struggle with is that we see ourselves here. Lord, we struggle with these desires inside of us. It's so easy to fall in to do the deeds of the flesh. And it's so hard, Lord, to live and walk with the Spirit. And Lord, this morning, we pray that you would give us understanding. Open our eyes, dear Lord. Open our eyes that we would know you. Open our eyes that we would see our need of you. Open our eyes that we would depend upon you. Father, I pray for everyone here that we would have ears to hear a tender heart, and a willingness to bring our hearts openly in an open hand before you for examination that we may repent 
and grow in holiness because of your, your holiness, because of your majesty, because of who you are. Lord, give me words to speak this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first verse of this passage, we are called to freedom. Just like Pallier was set free from his prison, so too we have been set free, but not set free in the same way. See, the freedom that we have been given is a qualified freedom. It's not a freedom to go do whatever we want. It is a freedom that is constrained, that is qualified, that has limits and it has boundaries. And that's what we have here described in this passage before us. We've been set We've been called to freedom, but that freedom is constrained. It is to be determined. And what I want to show you here in this passage before us is that we have a sort of freedom that is constrained, a freedom that gives us particularly three constraints or qualifications in this call to freedom. Three constraints or qualifications in our call to freedom. And the first one is that the flesh continues. The desires that we have, the natural desires we have are corrupted. And we see this here in verse 16 and 17. One of the things you are probably aware of is that you and I are made in the image of God. Being made in the image of God, have you ever noticed that God has desires? God desires all men everywhere to come to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. God has desires. He expresses those desires in his permissive will. He says, this is what I want you to do. Because we're made in his image, we also have desires. God has made us to be desiring people, and desires are one of the strongest motivators that you and I have. You and I tend to do what we want to do, what we desire, what pleases us. And you know, particularly in America, and I've lived here, for, I lived here for four years. I love this country. But we're taught that we have a freedom here, and it's almost a libertarian freedom that we get taught about. And this is just not, A, it's not biblical, but it's not even what the founding fathers had in mind. Freedom was always intended to be constrained. Freedom without constraint is licentiousness, is wantonness. We need to have those constraints. And so we have constraint upon us too. So the problem for us was that in the Garden of Eden, when before the fall, we were pure. Our desires were pure. And at that point, we did not need constraints because our desires were pure. But after the fall, what does it say in Genesis chapter 6? It says that God looked and it says there, he looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. See, sin corrupts our desires. So even though we are a desiring people, we're affected by the fall. We have desires that are now corrupted. And I don't know about you, but I've been here for two weeks, and and I can tell you that when I go home to New Zealand, I will be several pounds heavier than when I got here. One of the reasons for that is that my desire for food has been corrupted. And now I desire food more than I desire to honor God with that food, if you know what I mean. And so I end up coming, coming here and leaving and going home. You know, you got Krispy Kreme. We don't have that. I mean, come on. 
But the desire for food is an example of a desire that God has given to us, that God has placed in us a good and perfect desire that has become and can become corrupt. For some of us, unfortunately, more than for others. And there are other desires. And the thing is that before we were saved, without Christ, there is no, all of our desires are corrupt. There is no balance to that. The only balance to the corrupted desires that we have is the legal system and the, the norms of society. But our desires in their own right are corrupted. And without Christ, we live in the state of corruption. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, Among them, we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of what? Wrath. See, without Christ, a natural state is that we are children of wrath because there is no constraint on the corruption of our flesh within ourselves. But when salvation comes, we must recognize that we are dead in our sins. We must recognize that those sins, those desires, those, that corruption leads us astray, leads us away from God, and we need to repent. And so it says here in verse 25, those who belong to Christ, those who are of Christ, those who are joined to Christ, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Part of being a Christian is recognizing the corruption of our flesh and actively crucifying it, nailing it to the cross and leaving it there. But here's the thing. Even though sin has been put away before God, right? We are justified in Christ. The corruption of our flesh doesn't go away until our bodies are redeemed. That means that our souls are quickened, but our flesh remains corrupted. In fact, it remains the flesh that we had, the corrupted nature that we had prior to the fall remains unaffected with the same vigor that it had before we were saved. This is why Paul says that our freedom is not to be used as an opportunity for the flesh. Because if we give it a chance... It will, because those same desires are still there. The idea of an opportunity is really just a convenient circumstance. We are not to allow our freedom in Christ to be a convenient circumstance for sin. And of course, someone might ask, well, if we're free, can't we just do what we want? And Paul answers this in Romans 6. No, shall we who are set free from sin continue in it? Would Pallier, having spent 50 years in a French prison, go back voluntarily? And yet, how easy is it for us? And here's the point. We are called to freedom. When we use that freedom to obey the desires of the flesh, we're not slaves to sin. It's even worse. We are traitors Because that which we have been set free from, we voluntarily go back. We voluntarily submit ourselves again to that which originally enslaved us. Do you remember blind Bartimaeus in Luke chapter 18? 
He was a beggar. And like the reason he was a beggar is because he was blind. And as a blind man, it's pretty hard to take up a craft. I don't know if you've ever tried building a house with your eyes closed. It's pretty hard, right? Some people do it. I heard the other day, have you heard of Tough Mudder? Have you all heard of that? I, I, these are new things to me, but I was talking to a, a guy actually just yesterday who went through it. And he was telling me about a blind man who went through Tough Mudder that day. It was really interesting. But you know, he had help. He held on to someone all the way through it. But he did the monkey bars just slowly and all that sort of thing. But he did it. But it's very hard. And so Bartimaeus could not work because he could not see. His state of blindness kept him in a state of being in poverty and as a beggar. So you imagine if having been healed by Jesus, having been now set free from that which bound him, now being able to go and get a job, learn new skills, support himself, perhaps even get married, have children. What a wonderful freedom that is. But could you imagine if Bartimaeus had said, you know what? It's nice that I can see, but I'm going back to begging. I'm going to go back, stand by the road, and ask people just to give me money. The difference is that now he's begging by choice. He's making a conscious decision to return to his former state in spite of his lack of need to. He is free to go and do whatever he wants, but instead he brings shame upon the kindness of God the kindness of the Lord who healed him. And he rejects the work of God. He rejects the benefits of God's work in his life. He rejects the purpose of God's work in his life. God set him free from that blindness so that he could go and live a new life. God sets you and I free from our sins so that we can go and live a new life. And so when we return to the desires of the flesh, we volunteer ourselves to sin. We submit ourselves willingly to sin's murderous intent. We are not to enable sin. We are not to let sin reign over us. We are not to yield to the influence of the flesh. And how does the flesh influence this? How does it exercise this influence? Look at verse 17 there. The flesh sets its desires. The flesh has desires. You know, we all have desires. We all experience those desires. And we're drawn to doing those things that are subject to our desires. James explains this really well in James chapter 1. Each person is tempted when he is lured. Lured? That doesn't sound very American. Lured. Is that right? Lured? Lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. See the connection? The desires of the flesh lead to sin. And he explains later on that these desires are the source of quarrels and conflicts. What is the source of wars? Is it, do they not come from within? Are they not this, out of your pleasures? Is it not your desires that you have? This is chapter 4 of James chapter yeah, James 4, verses 1 and 2. See, our desires cause us to act so that when we act wrongly, when we act sinfully, we can trace it back to those desires that we have. And so, before salvation, all we have are those fleshly desires. All we have is sin, and this helps us understand the doctrine of depravity. There's nothing in us to balance that. But afterwards, we're set free. 
Afterwards, we're united with Christ. Afterwards, the Spirit of Christ lives in us. And so, first of all, we see that the flesh continues and the desires are corrupted. But then secondly, we see that the Spirit constrains. The Spirit of Christ comes and lives in us, and He constrains the desires of the flesh. Because now we have conflicting desires. Look at verse 17. For the flesh sets its desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. So while our flesh seeks to keep us enslaved, once we are enslaved, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us frees us from the constraints of those desires. We're now free from the desires of the flesh in a sense. So Paul says in verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You see how the Spirit frees us? We now get to say, I'm not going to walk by the flesh. I'm going to walk by the Spirit. It's interesting here that we have in verse 16, we have this active idea. We are to walk by the Spirit. That's an active command that you and I are to do. It's not something God does to us. This is something that you and I are to do. You and I are to walk by the Spirit. But then look down in verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit. Here we have a passive idea. So the idea is that God teaches us, right? And we actively walk, letting Him lead us. His teaching leads, we actively walk. See, there's a, there's a cooperation that's intended to be here. And in, as, in addition to all of that, there's this desire. And so we read in pas- passages like Philippians chapter 2, so that my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, active idea, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why with fear and trembling? I'm actively working, but why with fear and trembling? Because it is God who is at work in you. See, salvation and sanctification is a work that God and man cooperate in. Justification is a work God does on our behalf. Sanctification is something that you and I are actively to be involved in. It's not passive. We don't wake up one day and find, you know what, I'm holy today. Hurrah! I mean, that would be great, wouldn't it? But that's not the way it works. So on the one hand, we are to work, and on the other hand, God is working. On the one hand, we are to walk, and on the other hand, we are to be led. On the one hand, we are to act, and on the other, we are to be acted on. It's a both and. And the result of this walking by the Spirit is that you will not gratify or fulfill or complete the desires of the flesh. See, The idea of it being complete is that the flesh, the desires of the flesh want to take you somewhere, right? You can't stop those desires from being there, but you can prevent them from being completed. See, the flesh is still active and vigorous in us. It's there until the day of our death or the day of our redemption. We can't get rid of it. Its desires are going to plague us all our lives. But before we were saved and after we're saved, there is a difference, isn't there? There is a big difference. 
But notice this. The difference is not in your flesh. It's not in my flesh. The flesh continues. The difference is that now the Spirit of God lives in us and He brings His own desires that sit inside of us, that join themselves to our soul. And this is a game changer. See, if the flesh was all that there was, then we would continue the way we always continued. But because we have the Holy Spirit in us, because He's brought these desires, there are now, as we can see in verse 17, two sets of desires in us. There is the desire of the flesh still, but there's also now the desires of the Spirit. But notice also that they're opposed to one another. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit oppose one another. There's a conflict going on in our soul. In fact, James 4.1 says this, Your passions are at war within you. Second Peter, First Peter rather, chapter 2, verses 11. Verse 11 tells us that the passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. There is a conflict inside of every believer. And I tell you this, if there is no conflict inside of you, it could be that you're not saved. It could be that you're still in the flesh, a slave to the flesh. But as a Christian, our will is constrained by these two forces at work in us. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing. Notice that verse 17. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. You see, we don't have free will in the absolute libertarian sense. So there is a sense in which we do. We have freedom. But here's what the freedom is. The freedom is not in the ability to do what we want. The freedom is to, is, is to who will be our master. Whose slave will we be? Will we be a slave of the flesh? Or will we allow the spirit to control us? See, you and I are called as Christians, as believers, to a freedom constrained by the spirit. We're called not to be bound to the flesh, but to the spirit. We are called not to be enslaved to the flesh, but to enslave ourselves to the Spirit. This is why Paul calls himself a slave. We are called not to submit to the old master, but to the new master. The old master leads us into slavery, poverty and conflict and disputes. The old master leads us into arguments, pain, sadness and broken relationships. The old master leads us into alienation from family, and friends, and churches. We are called to a new master. We are called to a kind master, a gentle master, a master who helps and guides us. We are called to a master who loves us. We are called to a master who knows what we need and teaches us to walk in that need for our own good. And he is looking after our present and our future. See, God's work in us is to lead us with His own desires. Because the Holy Spirit lives in us, His desires will be in us. Because these desires are in us, there is a natural inclination for believers to follow those desires. These desires are toward the Lord. And this accounts for when somebody becomes a Christian. If you've heard stories, someone like, you probably read the story of Nicky Cruz. Uh, yeah, you know, comes a Christian, 
massive overnight change. Why? Because there's a new set of desires that have been put in him. And those desires just open up his whole life. He's now free. So these new desires are toward the Lord. They exalt the Lord. They make much of the Lord. These desires that the Spirit puts in us are to glorify the Lord. These desires are to worship Him with our all. And what a joy it is when these desires are strengthened in us through discipline, through care, through ongoing submission to the Word of God. And these desires are strengthened so that we can live not only according to the desires of the Spirit, but in the joy that comes with living according to those desires. Like I mentioned, if you don't have those desires, it may be that the Spirit of Christ is not in you. And if that's the case, or it could be even that that you're a believer, but you've followed the desires of your flesh so long, and so its desires overwhelm you. It seems like the desires of the Spirit are weak. The good news is that, that we're not slaves. We've been called to freedom. No matter how far we've fallen, no matter how much we're enslaved, Christ comes to set us free if we are willing but maybe you're asking, how can I identify it if I'm enslaved to the Spirit or to the flesh? How can I tell which desires I have? And that's our next point. We've seen that the flesh continues because and our desires are corrupted. We've seen that the Spirit constrains and we now have conflicted desires. And thirdly, the heart confirms and our desires are exposed. And this is a little scary. Our response as we follow whichever set of desires are in us, are exposed to all the see, to see. No doubt you're familiar with Galatians 5. No doubt you're familiar with the fruit of the Spirit. The point of this passage, though, is that whether you walk with the desires of the flesh or you walk with the desires of the Spirit, everybody can see which choice you make. Look at the passage with me. Verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are, what's the word? Evident. What does that mean? It means they are clear. They are plain. They are open. How would you see them? What do they look like? Well, the deeds of the flesh in verse 19 are immorality. Why immorality? Impurity, sensuality. These things are all the outworkings of following fleshly desires. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The point here is that whatever you follow, whichever law, whichever set of desires you follow, it's evident to people to see. They can all see which set you're choosing at any given moment. I don't know about you, but I find that pretty scary because that tells me that when you look at me and you see the choices I make and the things that I say, you know whether I am following the desires of the Spirit 
or the desires of the flesh. You can make that analysis. And that means that as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can call one another to account. We can interrogate one another in a sense, if you like, to say, why did you say that? What was going on in your heart? What desire did you have at that moment that led you to say or do that thing? And even within ourselves, we can think things about people. We can say things about people. We can do things to people. And we can look at ourselves and we can can say, what desire did I have at that moment that led me to do that? What did I want? And what did I really want? Was I wanting that person's good? Was I wanting to glorify God in my interaction? I'm not going to go through all of these different things that he says here, but you can break them into categories, essentially. The first three, pleasure-based immorality, right? So pleasure-based immorality. And then you've got false worship, idolatry, and sorcery. Sorcery, interestingly enough, I don't know if you know this, but the Greek word for sorcery is also kind of has this idea of, it's the actual word we get pharmacy from. So it's the idea of use of drugs. And the idea behind that was that drug use went along with idol worship. And so sorcery kind of is a way that, uh, for whatever reason, Tyndale actually used this word. So uh, interpersonal sins are included, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And then there's the escape sins, the sins that say, I want to get out of here, so I'm going to go and get drunk, or I'm going to have an orgy, which in my case means I eat too much. Uh, Things like that. But those things are all outworkings of corrupted desires. All these are are sourced in the desires of the flesh. See, pleasures such as sex, impurity, uh, and sensuality, these are all fleshly desires, good desires God gives that have been corrupted. False worship is sourced in really what can I get out of God? And we can commit idolatry even with the one true God by making him into something we want him to be like. Interpersonal sin is fleshly since it's really me exalting my desires over somebody else's desires. But the Bible calls us to submit to one another in the fear of Christ. I want to ask you, do you see yourself in any of these traits? You know, the progression of interpersonal sin starts with I want. And then I envy. Then I ask for it. Then I manipulate to get it. Then I demand it. Then we require it. And ultimately we murder, hate, or commit murder to eliminate what stands in the way of our desires. That's the progression that these desires take. Are you stuck in sexual immorality or sensuality? I mean, even if it's just inside but hasn't been acted out. Have you swapped out worship of the one true God for a, for a substitute, maybe a God of just purely love? Have you got interpersonal conflict in your life? Can you think of somebody with whom you've had an argument recently or with whom you're disappointed or upset or angry or who's angry at you? Are you escaping your problems with alcohol or food? If so, it's because you're following in the path of fleshly desires. But if you are Christ... If you belong to Christ, these are not the only desires in you. 
But you can see that following a path of the flesh is evident. It's plain. It's obvious. Other people can see it. But often we don't want to see it ourselves. The desires of the Spirit are evident in the fruit of the Spirit. So the other set of desires that's in us are those that the Holy Spirit bears. So just like the flesh bears fruit, so too the Spirit bears fruit. The, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The main point Paul is making here is not merely to point out the attitudes and behavior that ought to characterize our lives, though there is that. That's important, right? His main point here is that the desires that you and I follow make themselves clear. Other people see it, feel it, wear it, suffer for it. So we have a qualification in our call to freedom. The flesh continues and our desires are corrupted. The spirit constrains and our desires are conflicted. The heart confirms and our desires are exposed. How should we respond if we see the works of the flesh in us? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the, this is a characterization of an unbeliever. If your life is characterized by these things, if you're continually following in the desires of the flesh, and if the desires of the flesh dominate your life, then perhaps you need to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Second, if you see more of the flesh's characteristics in you than you would like to see, then it's time to recognize those desires for what they are. It's time to call them fleshly desires. Call it sin. Recognize it as corruption. Recognize it as the old flesh still there, still kicking, still trying to imprison you, still trying to enslave you. And seek instead to be led by what the Word of God and the Spirit of God lead. What the Word of God says and what the Spirit of God leads you to. And the Spirit of God always leads in accordance with the Word of God. And if the Spirit of God lives in you, if you see these characterizations in your life and you're saying right now, I wish I could get rid of that, rejoice. Rejoice if you wish to be holy because that's the desire of the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you and you want to do what is right, don't quench the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. Obey the Spirit. Follow the Spirit. Notice down in verse 24, all those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, and we do, if we are saved, it's because the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. But if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers and sisters, when you became a Christian, you repented. That means you crucified the flesh. You decided, and again, this is an active verb, you decided to actively put the flesh on the cross and see it die there. This included its passions and its desires. 
But the problem with a living sacrifice is it's so easy to get off the cross and come back to life, isn't it? When you repented, you were elected by the grace of God to put aside those passions and desires. And so in Romans 13, Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. That's no foresight, no planning, no providence for the flesh to gratify its desires. You've crucified the flesh. You've put it to death. So live by the Spirit. You can see why we need the Spirit of Christ in us, can't you? Because if it wasn't for the Spirit of Christ, that's all we would know is that corruption. But praise be to God that He has set us free by placing His Spirit and those desires inside of us. Without the indwelling Spirit, we cannot overcome the flesh, no matter how moral we may think we are. Without the Spirit, we are slaves to the flesh. We are imprisoned to the desires of the flesh, but we are called to a Spirit-constrained freedom, a freedom in which we submit ourselves to the one Master who works for our good. Why don't you pray with me? I want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. Just as you are there, just take a few moments to examine your own heart and your own life, your own thinking, your desires, and the things you do. I want to encourage you, if you find yourself in conflict, to take, a, take responsibility for part of that conflict. I want to encourage you, if you're, if you're escaping the world and its pressures with ungodly actions, drunkenness, food, whatever it may be, sex. I want you to give you an opportunity to, to bring that before the Lord. I want you to repent, to tell the Lord and ask His forgiveness. I'm going to give you a minute to do that. If you don't know Christ this morning, this is an opportunity to ask Him to to change your heart, to repent of your sins, to give your life to him and to put the flesh on the cross to see it die, that he may be glorified. Would you do that this morning? Father, we are a weak people. We are people too easily led into fleshly desires. Father, we pray, we plead with you. Would you open our eyes to see the goodness of your commands, to see the joy of obedience. Lord, may we seek to bring glory to you in all that we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever it is we do. May this be prominent in our mind. May your glory be the thing we long for more than anything else, even at the expense of our own lives and safety and comfort. Would you give to us a greater understanding of who you are? Would you help us to commit ourselves to seeing your majesty as revealed in your word, that we can be like Isaiah, people who see ourselves truly for what we are, but then who turn from sin and seek to serve you with hearts filled with love. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.